turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And like a good Ginsu knife commercial, he slices, he dices. Oh, wait, we'll leave that for another time. Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you on board. It is a Wednesday, 16th day of August, in case you've lost track. And just about five minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock on this edition of Lifeline. Lots to unpack in tonight's program. Ever wonder about the faith system of the Book of Mormon? I'm not referring to the Broadway play, but rather the actual Book of Mormon, the teachings of Mormonism. What do Mormons believe? We're going to unpack that topic coming up later on in the first hour. Dr. Latane Scott is going to join us. She is an award-winning author, more than 30 books to her credit, and considered one of the leading experts in the country on Mormonism. We're going to talk about what they believe and the differences between traditional, biblical, evangelical, mainstream Christianity and Mormonism. That's coming up later on in tonight's program. We begin, though, with an update on what's been happening to the west of us in Hawaii. Search and rescue operations continue a week after the Hawaiian island of Maui was devastated by wildfires. FEMA Administrator Diane Criswell said that canine search teams from the mainland are now searching to try and see if they can find those still missing, indicating more resources are on the way in a very difficult operation. At this point, at least 106 people have been killed in the fires. That number, however, expected to rise, while some 1,000 and area residents remain unaccounted for. With more on this story, we're joined by Alan Mila. Alan is program director for our sister stations located in Honolulu. Alan, thank you for taking some time to be with us this afternoon. Give us a bit of an update. I understand you're on a different island, certainly, but from your perspective in terms of what's been happening with the search and rescue or recovery operations there, and what are you hearing in terms of how people are, are responding to this tragedy? Uh, first and foremost, Craig, thank you for having me, and aloha my uh, which is just our way of saying aloha to all and greetings uh, to everyone. Uh, you know, I think I first and foremost want to say we appreciate all the prayers that we have received from across the world, um, especially on the mainland and here, also here on um, the island of Oahu. Uh, we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters and family and loved ones of the island of Maui who are just... Um, you know, unfortunately going through such a difficult time, but we hear the prayers of everybody and we appreciate it all. Um, there's a press conference going on right now as we speak. It's actually probably just wrapping up. I had to leave it a little bit earlier just to make sure I can give you guys a quick briefing of the latest. Um, as you mentioned, uh, currently uh, through the help of uh, the, fe- the federal government, we have over 20 cadaver dogs and agencies in here uh, in Maui right now in Lahaina to uh, help us in the search for uh, a search and recovery 
uh, efforts. Um, you know, Lahaina Town is still just, it's been completely flattened. So they're finding, unfortunately, they're finding bodies uh, still to this uh, moment. Um, at last check in this press conference, it uh, confirmed 110 uh, died. 35 autopsies have been completed so far with identification uh, slowly starting to come in. And um, when you think of the whole area that was affected by these wildfires, uh, only 38% of the area has been searched. So there's still a lot of searching to go on. And uh, that death count shall uh, probably most likely will rise. You know, we here in California can sympathy can simply be quite sympathetic with what you guys are experiencing there. Uh, we're not strangers to devastation of wildfires. In fact, one of the biggest death tolls in, in, in the last century was just here in Northern California about three years ago. And as we speak, there are evacuation orders that have been issued here in Northern California for a multi-acre fire burning in Siskiyou County. I think the thing that really is heartbreaking is the fact that as an island, escape routes, the ability to bring firefighting equipment in, fire personnel, at least here we can get involved in, in you know, participation, participation with uh, neighboring states that can bring fire equipment, firefighters in to deal with these blazes. But that, none of that really exists on the island of Maui. No, and it was this the wildfire happened so quickly with high winds of up gust up to eighty miles an hour. It spread so quickly there was no time and if there was time, um you know, I don't know if a lot of your listeners have been to the island of Maui, especially Lahaina Town. It's it's a one way in, one way out and so I, I know there's a lot of theories of who's the blame here on that, but the the reality is simply it's a one way in, one way out and you have a lot of people trying to exit fast. It's gonna get jammed up and, and that's where we're seeing a lot of uh, the devastation taking effect as far as bodies and the situation is simply to is um, you know like you said I think the difference is and, and really I'm, I'm not making light of any situation by no means but I think the situation is simply you know with wildfires in California I'm actually born and raised in California um, you know, you have you have days and hours, you know, hours and days um, uh, up the weeks to to think about evacuation, uh, think about a plan of where you're going. We've never seen a wildfire of this uh, proportion, and and so there was only literally minutes to maybe an hour to to evacuate, and then you have a logjam of of a lot of people trying to exit one way. Um, it was a recipe for disaster, unfortunately, and then we're reeling from that, and. Um, you know, so it's, it's. I think it's such unprecedented, and, and the director of Red, the Red Cross, who's in uh, Maui, on Maui right now, just stated that out of his ten years of being with the Red Cross, he's been to every disaster uh, across the U.S. Uh, this is really has been unprecedented, and in a situation that he's he, you know he's never seen before. Give me your sense. Uh, it's certainly, a perspective from the mainland. Uh, many people that have been watching the the disaster unfolding that have. Um, fond memories of vacationing uh, there in Lahaina or, or trying to understand just, just how widespread, how complete is the devastation. I've seen some drone footage that's pretty heartbreaking. What's your sense closer in, Alan? Uh, is it fair to say that there's practically nothing left of that town at this point? Yeah, it, it, you're pretty much, uh, you hit it on the, the head right there. It, it's simply, if you guys have ever been to Front Street, that is where, you know, um, that's the most uh, iconic spot in Lahaina is that Front Street. Um, it's completely gone, completely flattened, turned to ash. 
and um, it's it's devastating to see there's still cars strewn across the the, the road on, on Front Street that are just burnt out. Um, and so there's really outside of maybe one structure here or there that somehow survived it. Um, the 150-year-old banyan tree, which holds such significance to, to the people of Hawaii and especially Maui, um, it is still standing. Um, they, they said as they had Arbus in town to, to kind of just check on it, uh, it's, it's kind of in a, a coma right now. There are some cells underneath that they, they see are alive, but it's in a coma. They don't know if it will survive. Hmm. Um, it, it, it's one of the iconic trees you, you see when you get into Lahaina town. And so, uh, but it is completely all ash right now, and it, and it's such a it's such a devastating uh, sight to see. And um, you know, our hearts are breaking, but we hear those prayers, and and we'll we'll recover, we'll get through this. But right now, it's just a, a, it's such a difficult time as there's still a hundred unaccounted for, uh, especially in Lahaina Town right now. Yeah, that's the shocker, and of course, part of it. I know that there's been sort of a shift in language, uh, moving from missing to unaccounted for because so much of an impact on community communication by the fire uh, has hampered the ability of people to be able to let friends, family, relatives know, hey, we're here, we're okay, we just can't communicate with you. What is your sense, Alan, and I know this is a difficult question, but looking at the degree of devastation and recognizing, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, the complexity of the fact that it's an island. And so getting goods, getting services, getting materials, getting support, getting help requires it coming in by air or by sea. There's just no other way to pull it off. And so when you talk about the simple research and recovery, and then at some point it begins to shift into let's remove the debris and begin to rebuild, in your estimation, just how challenging is that going to be? Are we talking about months and months? Are we talking about years? Are we talking about decades before Lahaina could come back to what it once was based on the very challenges of all of this happening on an island? You know, I I think in my honest opinion and I'm no expert on it I would say this is going to last into years into decades to finally you know to fully rebuild because you're not only talking about Lahaina town as far as front street you're talking about the surrounding town of Lahaina uh, the city um, the oldest school uh, west of the Rockies Lahaina Luna um, high school is, is still standing but uh, all those kids are being uh, moved to other uh, schools across Maui other districts um, we, we thank those school districts for allowing the students of Lahaina uh, Lahaina Luna to be able to go to school at, at other at other schools uh, but I, I think you're talking because of so many structures have been burnt down I think you're looking realistically into years, if not decades, to, make, uh, to get Lahaina fully rebuilt. Yeah, especially, as I say, when so much needs to be brought in either from the mainland or, or, or elsewhere on the islands. Well, Alan, we appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule uh, to uh, keep us posted here on the mainland in San Francisco. Uh, certainly our thoughts and prayers, everybody who has um, adopted uh, the islands as their vacation home um, and has fond uh, memories of, of fun times and weddings there and all of it, uh, our hearts and certainly our prayers go out to you. Alan Mila, Program Director. Director with our sister stations located in Honolulu. 516 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, undoubtedly, you have encountered them. Perhaps they've knocked on your front door. A pair of young men, nicely dressed, clean white pressed shirts, name tags. 
sharing with you a bit about Mormonism. Maybe you've run into the Book of Mormon in a hotel or a motel as you've traveled. You might be aware of the fact that the Book of Mormon subtitle is Another Testament of Jesus Christ. What exactly does that mean from an evangelical perspective? Certainly the New Testament serves as the record of Christ's life, mission, and ministry. So is the Book of Mormon just an addendum, a continuance of the New Testament? Or is it indeed another testament, meaning an entirely different testament? And is this testament fundamentally at odds with the teachings that we find within canonical scripture of the Old and New Testament? Well, to peel back some of the mystery regarding the teachings and beliefs of Mormonism, we're joined now by Dr. Latane Scott. Dr. Scott is the author of more than uh, 30 books, many of them, multiple award winnings. She holds a Ph.D. in biblical studies and is the author of one of the best-selling books on the topic called The Mormon Mirage. And Dr. Scott, thank you so much for joining us once again. Always a pleasure, Craig. Thank you. Let's talk about some of the fundamental basics. I I would suppose at sort of first glance, a lot of people would think, well, Mormons talk about belief in Jesus Christ and serving God. And and there's even a sense of acknowledgement of the existence of the Trinity and heaven. And so perhaps at the end of the day, their belief system isn't fundamentally different than, say, a member of a mainline evangelical church, be it um, uh, Presbyterianism or Lutheranism, uh, whatever the case might be. But I have to wonder, is that really the case? And it seems from some of the research that I've done that you don't have to dig down very far to many of the, the fundamental pillars of mainline evangelical, mainline Christian teaching to recognize that there are some very profound differences between the teachings of Mormonism and mainline Christianity. Why is that? Well, you know, Craig, I was thinking about the fact that um, all over the country, kids are going back to school and they're going to be meeting new friends are members of the Mormon Church, and they will have exactly these questions because they will go home to mom and dad and say, this person says they believe in Jesus Christ, this person says they believe in God, they go to church, they're clean cut, you know, they don't drink or smoke, they're, you know, have clean lifestyles, and can't I go to one of their ward dances with them, or can't I, why can't I go to Sunday school with them? <clears throat> and so, I'd like to answer this questions kind of as if um, I were talking to the parents out there um, of kids, and you, of course, can ask me, Craig, this is your show, to clarify uh, however you want to, but one of the things, and this may not be exactly where you thought I might be starting out about this, but when I was a Mormon, a kid in high school, and well, grade school, junior high, and then high school and college, I believed I had two sets of parents. I believed that I had parents here on this earth, my mother and my father, whose physical union had caused the uh, birth of my body here on earth. But I believed that God the Father, in a physical form, had had spiritual intercourse with uh, one of his wives, one of his many wives, and that the spirit that was produced there 
um, was something that was inserted into my body, my physical body at the point of birth. Okay, so we we have our first back up the truck moment. (laughs) Um, God in a physical form. Now, from a a Trinity perspective, I would say, well, yes, that that is true, uh, that God certainly for a period of time in a physical form in the person of Jesus Christ dwelt among us. But I have a sneaking suspicion that's not what you mean when you say God in a physical form. No, God the Father. Um, No Mormons believe that God the Father and Jesus Christ and the personage they call the Holy Ghost, they don't call him the Holy Spirit, are three separate and distinct people with separate and distinct histories, uh, points of origin, a length of time living, that sort of thing. And when I was talking about God in eternity before I was born, I was talking about God the Father having intercourse with one of his wives in eternity to produce a spirit child that that was me before my spirit entered into my body. Okay, this is odd because I can take you through multiple chapters that will indicate John is spirit, God is spirit, for example, in John 4 and 24, and that spirit does not have flesh and bones, Luke 24 and 39. So we have our first major dichotomy. So the the argument goes then that, that who we would identify from mainstream Christendom as God, our Heavenly Father, had been what at one point a man and kind of uh, uh, progressed up <laughs> through through the millennia. What's the thinking there? Exactly. Um, in in Mormon doctrine, and of course this is not something taught overtly, but it is something that is um, talked about is kind of in the, under the surface and, and certainly comes out in the Mormon temple ceremonies. Is that Um, God himself, God the Father himself, a completely distinct person from Jesus Christ, uh, once lived on another planet. And when he was a human being, he did such a good job of being a, a human being that his God elevated him to Godhood after his death. Oh, so there's another God in here and another planet? Oh, there's many gods because the, the, uh, the process goes on backwards to eternity that the God who created um, God the Father on his planet went through the same process previously back uh, millennia before that. So yes, in a very real sense, Mormonism is not uh, monotheistic. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, Dr. Scott, because I was just going to say, as you were commenting a moment ago about the the, the distinct um, lack of belief or teaching related to the Trinity, that this is starting to sound like distinct gods and polytheism. But it's it's more than just looking at the figures of Jesus Christ, the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit as being three distinct and therefore, in that sense, polytheistic. It, it, it's more complicated and multi-layered than that. Much more complicated because 
Um, in John chapter 1, the Bible is very plain about saying that those who believe on Jesus' name can become sons of God. They can become spirit, brothers with Jesus Christ, so to speak. Um, and that's what we as Christians are promised. But in the Mormon, when a Mormon reads that chapter, they are thinking, no, Jesus Christ is actually our spirit brother because all the human beings on this earth were created by God the Father and one of his wives. But the first person he gave, his one of his wives gave birth to was Jesus Christ. So remember, Craig, that I said that these three beings have different histories? Yes. Just as God the Father is not eternal in the sense that he had a beginning point as a God, Jesus Christ also had a beginning point as the Son of God. That's quite different. I mean, it, it's diametrically opposed to what the Bible says. Well, absolutely. In the beginning was the Word, right? <laughs> but apparently that's not a fundamental belief of Mormonism. And so we're, we're, we're not only raising significant questions relating to a polytheistic approach, but then this notion, I mean, you know, we, we know from a biblical perspective that that God has always, always been. And well, yet the the Mormon teaching sounds like there's a definite starting place, which also would perhaps suggest that if there's a starting place, is there an ending place, too? No. Um, surprisingly, the process goes on through eternity after that person has begun. Now, I don't know how deep you want to get into Mormon theology, but maybe I should just point out one other thing. And, and I guess it's not a bad thing for me to point out something that complicates and muddies the water a bit. Because imagine how difficult this is for a Mormon to try to explain it to a, a Christian or even to think through it themselves. But Mormons believe that all, all people existed as what they called intelligence, pure intelligence. Yeah, in the uh, in the universe, and that God um, took those intelligences, clothed them with spirit bodies, uh, with the as he united with his wives to produce these individual spirits that were put into human bodies at the time of birth. Now, let me ask you a question, uh, Doctor Scott, and I appreciate you making that point of of clarification. And 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 clearly that we're gonna we're gonna wind up just hitting sort of the, the surface here because it, it it's becoming quite apparent that this is a very involved, multi layered onion that we're peeling back mm -hmm. here. But I'm curious in terms of the specificity to that teaching that you just referred to. Is that something that is laid out singularly within the pages of the Book of Mormon. I know that Mormonism uses a number of um, extra, you know, the Christian perspective, we would call it extra biblical. In this case, we'll call it extra Mormon teachings, such as, for example, the, the book, The Pearl of Great Price. So w w from what teachings does this, this doctrine or this teaching uh, come from? Surprise you probably and probably most of your listeners. But the doctrine that is in the Book of Mormon itself, just the Book of Mormon, is uh, quite in line with most evangelical Christian churches. None of this I've been telling you appears in the Book of Mormon. Not one single bit of it. In fact, it is a very Trinitarian book. So it's almost as sort of the, the inside teaching, if I can use that term. Is that correct? 
No, it's a teaching that developed because um, Joseph Smith, uh, who wrote the Book of Mormon, even though he says he received it, he was one of the co-authors along with uh, some other people, I believe. But Joseph Smith... um, he was uh, he was interested in finding buried treasure. We have court documents that show that that's something he as a young man did. And so when he came up with an idea of finding a golden book that an angel had brought to him, that it caused a great deal of excitement in the early 1820s in Upper New York State because there was a there was a bit of a revi- uh, religious revival going on there anyway. Historically, you can look back a lot of the uh, a lot of the um, um, uh, Christian denominations uh, of the that started in the 1800s had their genesis, so to speak, in that area. In, in Upper New York State, where Joseph Smith was. So he has this book, he says, that he's translating, but he ends up quoting the Bible for a great part of it. Um, the book of Isaiah is, is quoted chapter after chapter after chapter. But at that point, none of these doctrines about God are in this Book of Mormon. This Book of Mormon is mainly kind of a, a war saga about people that lived on the American continent um, before Columbus came. And I know from, from doing some comparative reading myself that there are large swaths of the Book of Mormon that seem to be uh, direct plagiarism, meaning uh, taken straight out of the New Testament, uh, perhaps with some um, slight massaging of the language. But isn't there a strong comparison between the Book of Mormon and uh, New Testament teaching? Well, um, even more of Old Testament teaching, because, um, and I and I said, as it may surprise you, um, you could you could quote from the Book of Mormon in a many Christian churches that don't open their Bibles and get away with it. In fact, I had a professor. Do you have time for a little story? I tell you what, hold that thought for a minute because my engineer is giving me the uh, the eye here telling me we need to take a quick time out and I don't want to interrupt you. So we're going to just put a slight pause there. Dr. Latane Scott is with us today. We're doing a brief sort of top surface overview about what do our Mormon neighbors actually believe? What does Mormonism teach? And just how broad are the contrasts between mainline evangelical or biblically-based theology and Mormon theology? Just how wide are the differences between the two? We'll continue our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. An overview of the teachings of Mormonism. With me today, best-selling author Dr. Latane Scott, who's written more than 30 books. She has a Ph.D. in biblical studies. And I'll mention that Dr. Scott has a free gift for Lifeline listeners. If you want to understand more about the trappings, the teachings, the way to identify the fundamentals of a cult, any cult, you can take advantage of a digital resource that provides over 30 characteristics of a Christian-type cult. You can download it free by going to latane.com forward slash cults. That's L-A-T-A-Y-N-E dot com forward slash cults. Dr. Scott, I apologize. We had to interrupt you uh, just before the break there. I didn't want to um, have you start your story and then have to stop you. So uh, please pick up your thought where you left off. Oh, no apologies necessary, Craig. Um, I had a professor at BYU who went home over the Christmas break to his hometown, which he had not been to since he had converted to Mormonism. 
and one of his um, former church pastors saw him in the um, in the grocery store and said, um, Brother Roger, uh, I'm going to be out of town. Would you like to preach for us? And he said, sure. So my professor went in front of this small uh, church and held up a leather-bound book, which was the Book of Mormon bound together with the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrine and Covenant, and preached an entire sermon of, of out of um, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, and nobody ever knew the difference. And he was laughing his head off because nobody challenged him. Nobody said, where's that found or anything else. He would just say, it says in Scripture. Scriptures of that time are written in King James English, so they sound like the King James Bible. And so um, the the point I would like to uh, make about how these doctrines developed is a really important one. Remember I said that the Book of Mormon didn't have any distinctly, what we would call today, Mormon doctrines in it. Joseph Smith Smith produced this translation of some gold plates, supposedly. Uh, I think it's a money-making venture, and I think it just kind of got out of hand. So he had to create this story about God the Father and Jesus Christ as separate physical beings standing in a grove, telling him to not join any church on earth because they were all wrong. Every church on earth in, in 1820 was wrong, and that he would have to start a new church, and that he would do it with this Book of Mormon. But as he went along, after the Book of Mormon came out, he said he kept getting revelation. So these became part of what is called the Doctrine and Covenants, which are just a series of revelations. And these, in these are where what we would think of as distinctly Mormon doctrines start developing. The idea of being married um, in a temple forever, the idea of polygamy, the idea of um, the, the setup and the arrangement of the Mormon church with a prophet, so to speak, as they would say in, their, in, their, um, uh, in the leadership of it. Just as this expanded out, think of this as this great kind of a um, funnel that, that's spreading out with more and more different, odd, extra-biblical doctrines. Something's happened recently, Craig, that I have noticed is the Mormon Church is backing up on some of those and trying to appear more Christian. And so a lot of these things that I was taught as a Mormon kid that everybody in the Mormon Church believed that we talked about, they're kind of saying, well, we don't really know about that. You know, that we've, we've said that in the past, but, you know... And my question is this, Craig. Either God is or he isn't. Either he, he can't, you can't have a doctrine about God change. You can't say that he was once a man and then say we're not sure about it if you have direct revelation from God to set people straight to form a new church that is the only correct church on the face of the earth, right? You know, what seems seems remarkable about this is, and and, and you would be ideally qualified to opine on this, uh, it's been argued that one of the worst things to happen to Scientology, for example, was the Internet. Why? Because the Internet kind of let the cat finally out of the bag, that there were aspects that people would hear about uh, Scientology and think, well, this is a self-help, self-motivation, self-improvement program. 
program. Uh, there, there's nothing really harmful going on here. And then suddenly you learn that as you progress through and have all of these audits take place and you kind of make your way up the process toward clear, quote unquote, that uh, the the teachings of the Church of Scientology get stranger and stranger and stranger. And all of a sudden it reads like a science fiction novel. Oh, wait, that's what L. Ron Hubbard used to do. He wrote pulp fiction, science fiction novels in the 1950s. And there are aspects of what you're saying here today as well in terms of, you know, God being of flesh and, uh, you know, having failures, but becoming perfected in the notion that even human beings can go through the same thing and become miniature gods themselves. Wow. I mean, certainly from a from a pure mainline theological viewpoint, this is sounding more and more like pretty creative uh, fiction writing. So I have to wonder some of these changes to which you refer or whether becoming less confident in some of the teachings. How much of that is, in your opinion, directly attributable to the ability of people to go online and read what the, the, the Mormon church really teaches? That is an excellent question, and I have two examples to explain that. The first one is, in my book, The Mormon Mirage, I document an article that was written by a Mormon researcher about the Mormon church in Japan, which was really blowing and going up until the Internet. Once the people in Japan, who had only heard about Mormonism from Mormons, started researching, it it destroyed the church, the Mormon church in Japan. I mean, they lost entire leaderships of, of congregations, which they call wards. I mean, it, it wiped them out. Now, I think they kind of climbed back. But the only way you climb back from something like that is either to disavow something that was previously done, and that goes back to my question that I just said, how can God be something and then be something different? You can't change your doctrine about who God is if he's an eternal being. You can't say, well, he's, he's this, and then come back later and say, well, no, he, he never was that. We just thought that, if you have direct revelation. But here's, here's the other thing that will blow your mind, Craig. Simon Southerton, who is a, uh, was a Mormon researcher, he's the one that broke the news, and it was worldwide news, that the DNA uh, tests on Native Americans show that they are not Jews which is the whole point of the Book of Mormon, is that Jews came over to, to the uh, North and South America and populated uh, what would, would be found when Columbus arrived. We would call Native Americans are actually Jews. This man, that, that, uh, this DNA researcher, blew that out of the water. But let me read you a quote that's going to blow you away because it answers your question. He said that his, his um, analysis of attendance of Mormon uh, wards and churches in Australia, Canada, and the United States of America, and I think Great Britain may be in there too, but I'm not sure. He says, without a doubt, the most single most important factor driving the collapse in attendance at Mormon churches is the arrival of the Internet and social media. And the statistics, he, now this is a researcher, a PhD researcher, he says in the vicinity of 40 to 50% of the people who are attending the LDS, LDS church in the year 2000 have now stopped attending. And then he says, this is a quote, that's not merely a decline in attendance, that's an apostasy. And he says it's because of the internet. 
So, yes, you are absolutely right about that. Wow. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. Latane Scott is with us today. She is the author of almost 30 best-selling books. And um, one of the books, of course, that she's best known for is The Mormon Mirage, which has been in print for, my goodness, um, over four decades now. We have a special offer for you. Dr. Scott is offering to Lifeline listeners a digital resource that helps share and enlighten your understanding on some 30 characteristics of what a Christian-type cult looks like. And you can avail yourself to this by simply going to Dr. Latane's website, Latane, L-A-T-A-Y-N-E, Latane.com forward slash cults. That's Latane.com forward slash cults. And you can download this complimentary digital resource for yourself. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our discussion as we peel back the onions on some of the more Unique teachings of Mormonism and how drastically they differ from mainline Christendom. That is Lifeline Continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Today, a top view overview of the teachings of Mormonism and what's apparently the stark contrast between fundamental teachings of mainline Christendom versus Mormonism. With us today is Dr. Latane Scott, and um, she is not only a former Mormon herself, but also has written a best-selling book on the topic. Um, you have talked about this notion that they don't, uh, Mormonism doesn't teach about the origins of God the same way that we see from a, um, a um, fundamental viewpoint. Uh, certainly there's a difference in terms of uh, the Trinity, um, salvation and sin, differences there too. And it's interesting because I think some people that kind of scratch the surface would say, well, it, it awful lot of it sounds very Christian-like, but you have... You have characterized Mormonism as pseudo-Christian cult. Uh, take us a little bit deeper on that. Well, um, a pseudo-Christian cult is a, a religious group that uses the terminology of the Bible and the terminology of uh, mainline Christians and assigns different meanings to those words. For instance, God the Father, we think, uh, a spirit being, or a, a being of uh, a non-corporeal being that has been in existence from eternity and will exist throughout eternity, and that he's unchanged and all that, right? They would think when uh, a Mormon kid or a Mormon adult says God the Father, they're talking about someone that they feel an affinity with because he once lived on earth too, and he had to struggle the same way they, they did to in their quest for Godhood. So that's just one example of a pseudo-Christian cult is uses the terminology that assigns different meanings to the words and prov provides also a different view of salvation. Even the word salvation is defined differently in Mormonism than it is to you and me. Right, let's talk about that, because we would see it from a Christian perspective as salvation by grace through faith alone, not a work of mankind, strictly a work of what Jesus Christ has, been do has done on the cross, paid a penalty in our behalf. If we repent of our sins and accept the work that he's done on our behalf, we will be saved. Now, that's kind of the encapsulated version of, of, of the Christian viewpoint on salvation. What does Mormonism teach about salvation? The word means something different. I was walking around when I was a Mormon at a flea market one time, and somebody was, at a, was handing out some brochures and things, and this person uh, grabbed me by the arm and said, are you saved? 
And I said, well, of course, because according to Mormon doctrine, the word salvation means what Jesus Christ paid for on the cross was the ability to have your body resurrected, and that would happen to everybody, good or bad. Everybody would be resurrected. So asking a Mormon, are you saved, is nonsensical because it, 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 everybody is saved. What is important to a Mormon is whether or not he or she is going to be exalted. Very different concept. Wow. Which, which of the three levels of heaven are you going to end up in? That's what's important to a Mormon. Asking if they're saved is like, oh, you know, big deal. Why, do you, why are you asking me, am I breathing? How, why are you asking me, am, am I alive? Of course I'm saved. Everybody will be saved. So th- this suddenly shifts pretty rapidly into the category of a, a, a works-type religious belief. But in this case, it's not works unto salvation, but it's works unto what? Exhortation? Exaltation? Exaltation. You know, I didn't see it that way when I was a Mormon. And I, I suspect that many Mormons would not think that it's works-based. But when you sit down and find, see how the Mormon Church evaluates their individual members in terms of their behavior and their actions and their contributions, <clears throat> in order to go into a Mormon temple and be considered in good standing in the Mormon Church, you have to go into uh, a one-on-one meeting with your, or sometimes it's, it's more than one person, but we're talking about a very select a couple of people who ask you questions about your moral purity, whether or not you drink or smoke, whether or not you give 10% of your church, of your salary to the Mormon church, uh, whether or not you wear temple garments, if, excuse me, if you've been through the temple. So you are evaluated by your works in Mormonism. They would say, no, you know, Jesus Christ gives this to us, and we would agree on that. But what you and I believe that Jesus Christ gave us is very different from what they believe that he gave and what they have to do to achieve what's beyond that. And um, I documented in the Mormon Mirage about the very high suicide rate among Mormon women as compared to other uh, people of the same demographic, women who same age, you know, same social status, etc. And it's because it, on women, women especially, the um, the pressure is so hard on them just to to be beautiful and be um, accepting to your husband and in such a way that he'll find you attractive so you can have many children because after all, God the Father and his wives have created all these spirits up in heaven and you should provide bodies for them by being pregnant, right? I mean, wow. I believe that and I rejoiced in it. Craig, I wasn't ashamed of that. I thought I was going to do a, do a favor to God by providing uh, bodies for as many children as I could. But but imagine imagine the plight of these poor Mormon women who are having multiple children, uh, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with it, but their motivation is to keep um, these spirit children to having to come into Craig Roberts' house, home, or Latane Scott's home, or, or some other Christian's home, where they will be not be taught the Mormon gospel. You know what's remarkable here too, and I, and I, I think it's it's a good note to to end on, and that is for people to understand that if we get into a dialogue with a Morgan a Mormon, we think we're talking the same language, and might falsely conclude that 
same language, therefore same belief system. But then when you begin to understand just how severe the applicate the differences in application of understanding of the significance of certain words or phraseology or teaching, we begin to find out that there are very few things that would allow mainstream Christendom to stand theologically side by side with Mormonism and not conclude that it is a cult. If you want to get more information, uh, I mentioned earlier that Dr. Scott is offering a free gift for listeners of Lifeline. It is a resource, a digital resource called What is a Cult? that will provide you with over 30 characteristics of what a Christian-esque or a Christian-type cult looks like. You can get that information available to you by downloading at latane.com forward slash cults. That's L-A-T-A-Y-N-E dot com forward slash cults. Wow, Dr. Scott, we have barely scratched the surface here today. We're going to have to ask you back and uh, dive into this, maybe take a layer at a time because there's a lot to unpack here. And and certainly even myself, as often as I've dealt with this topic down through the years, uh, have learned more even today. Dr. Latane Scott, best-selling author with with us today, her best-selling book on the topic called The Mormon Mirage, and you can get information online by going to Latane, L-A-T-A-Y-N-E, Latane.com. Our thanks to Dr. Latane Scott for being with us on that segment of Lifeline, 6 o'clock from KFAX.